If you want to pump your body and expand your mind, there's only one place to go. Mind Pump. Mind Pump. With your hosts, Sal Stefano, Adam Schaefer, and Justin Andrews. You just found the world's number one fitness, health, and entertainment podcast. This is Mind Pump, right? In today's episode, we interviewed David Epstein. He's the author of the book, The Sports Gene, Inside the Science of Extraordinary Athletic Performance. Uh, this guy's pretty incredible. So he did a lot of investigating as to why athletes keep breaking records. And uh, he actually has a very popular TED Talk that talks about this. A lot of it doesn't have to do with the fact that athletes are actually faster and stronger, but rather better technology, like the track that they run on or the pool that they're swimming in or the shoes that they're wearing. It's actually quite uh, remarkable. But we do also cover performance-enhancing drugs in this episode and the new horizon of drugs that athletes will, are going to start messing with. So great episode. We know you're going to enjoy it. By the way, this episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Felix Gray Glasses. Now, they make blue light blocking glasses that are clear. They don't change the color of the world around you, yet they're super effective. They're stylish. And uh, you know the studies. Blue light blocking glasses can help improve your sleep and boost melatonin and growth hormone production when you do go to sleep. So it's good stuff. Go check them out. Head over to felixgrayglasses.com. That's F-E-L-I-X-G-R-A-Y glasses.com forward slash mind pump. Also, we are running a sale on two programs, MAPS HIT, that's high intensity interval training, and the No BS Six Pack Formula, which is a core training program. They're both 50% off. Go check them out at mapsfitnessproducts.com. Just use the code July Special with no space for that discount. So, David, I want to start off with, because uh, I know you've written a lot of books and uh, you're, you've written quite a few articles. And I love your, the first time I heard about you I, I was one of your TED Talks, which really blew me away. But I want to talk uh, about one of your books in particular to start with, which is the, the the sports gene. What motivated you to write that, and what were some of the things that you discovered uh, while writing that book? Yeah, it's kind of a kind of a twofold motivation. Um, one is sort of a sad story, so just a warning of that, which is that uh, I had a training partner, uh, track athlete. I was a I was a at one point like a national level half miler, eight hundred meters, and one of my training partners dropped dead at the end of a race, actually. Oh, wow. uh, young guy, first in a family of Jamaican immigrants, you know, who was going to go to college and all this stuff. And, uh, you know, one of the top ranked guys in his in his age group uh, in the country. And I sort of wondered how that could happen. And long story short, I investigated that. It turned out he had this uh, genetic condition that was undiagnosed. That's most commonly the cause of sudden death in athletes. And that got me interested in genetics in general. But, but I also had just from my own sports participation – uh, and, and spectating this sort of running list of questions in my head of things about development of skill and balance of nature and nurture in sports that eventually when I got to a space where I was the science writer at Sports Illustrated, I said, you know, I, I, I want to sort of take those questions on, whether it was like, why can't baseball, you know, major league baseball hitters hit softball pitchers, or why do we see people from certain parts of the world overrepresented in certain sports? And so it's kind of a combination of a tragedy igniting this interest in genetics with, just my own running list of questions I wanted to explore from having been an athlete and, and, and watching athletes. Now, part of that is a bit controversial, right? Is to find, figure out why people from certain regions of the world do better at some sports uh, versus others. For example, this one, this one comes to mind. Samoans are as, as a result, you know, when you look at their total population, they're like mm -hmm. 40 times uh, overrepresented in the NFL. I think 3% of the NFL 
is made up of Samoan athletes. And if you consider their small population, it's like tremendous overrepresentation in that particular sport. How do you explain something like that? Because there's lots of examples, right? Like you see uh, Kenyans and Ethiopians and distance running, Jamaicans and sprinting and, and so on. Like, what does that come from? It's, I think it's easy for us to assume it's genetics, but is there more to it? There's always more to it. I think it's always a big mix, you know, this this braid of, of nature and nurture. But I think since you mentioned Kenyans, that's kind of a good example um, because mm-hmm. when you go to Kenya, when I went to Kenya and you kind of look for, well, what's the secret of this running? Uh, the Kenyans point you to kind of one particular tribe called the Kalenjin. So like, you know, in America, we say, oh, Kenyans, you know, wow, they're so talented at distance running. And the Kenyans, they're like, oh, those, those Kalenjin, wow, they're really, you know, mm. they're really talented at distance running. And it's, it's this specific tribe um, that's their total population is like, you know, like metropolitan Atlanta, basically. Um, and and they have, uh, they have sort of a, a nature-nurture perfect storm. I mean, on the nature side, they have their recent evolutionary history, like right around the equator. I was crisscrossing the equator when I was uh, going to their training camps. And that that leads to sort of body forms that tend to have what's called distal elongation, which means you have more of your weight farther from your center of mass. And because you're, that means you tend to have sort of slim outer extremities. And because the leg is like a pendulum, uh, it takes a lot less energy to swing if you have less weight at the extremity. So they're like shoe companies have done experiments where they'll take a certain amount of weight and, and put it on someone's torso, basically near their center of gravity. And they'll consume like, you know, 1% more oxygen to go a certain pace. And then if they move that same weight down to their ankles, it'll be like, 8% or 10% more. And mm. so, so it has something to do with sort of their, their history, but it's also, uh, you know, become a cultural phenomenon there. They had a few breakout stars and, and that those people become uh, icons. And I, and I think the best way to be, have a population overrepresented in a particular sport is, is marketing the sport really well to that population more than anything. So I think it's a combination of having, you know, enough people who have the physiological characteristics uh, that you're looking for with kind of a, uh, a sociological web of engagement in that particular sport. Now, when you went in to do the research for the sports gene, uh, how many things uh, did you assume correctly and how many things were you completely off about? Oh man, if you could see my book proposal, uh, I, I was assumed correctly very little. Oh wow! But not only that, I mean, I ended up contradicting things that I had written in Sports Illustrated because oh, I only sort of realized you know, after a year of basically, for a year, I didn't even write anything. I just kind of read scientific journal articles and uh, and did interviews and realized that even scientists had been telling me things that their data didn't prove. Um, you know, that's how I got into the whole kind of criticizing the 10,000 hour rule stuff. I mean, I, I thought that things like the reflexes it takes to, to hit a hundred mile per hour fastball would be, uh, genetic would be a genetic advantage that turned out not to be the case at all. I thought things like the willingness to, to train would be totally volition or free will. And it turned out there's a strong genetic component to that. So I was, (laughs) I was closer to backward than getting it right, I guess. (laughs) Wow. You know what you said about um, Kenyans having this culture around running kind of reminds me of how in, in, for example, in America, we tend to dominate in certain sports. Then in other sports, we tend to not at all like soccer, for example, we have Great runners, great track athletes, obviously great football players and baseball players. Then when it comes to soccer, we tend to get our butts kicked. But I guess if you look at our market for soccer, it's far smaller than what you would find in, let's say, South America and Europe. So we just have 
less people focusing their energies and talents towards that. Does that is that correct? Is that accurate? S- sort of. I mean, first of all, we're we're dominant in women's soccer, um, and and in men's soccer, I think. Um, I, I don't think it's totally correct that we don't have as many people. Because if you look at registered soccer players, so these are tracked, the U.S., you know, has like more than Brazil. I mean, in, in women's soccer, we have m- more than like the rest of the world combined, which is one of the reasons we're so good. So many more opportunities. I think it's the success we see is very much a function of the opportunities we've provided uh, and that, that really aren't there in most other countries. On the men's side, those opportunities have been there for longer. I, I think, honestly, that a lot of it has to do with basically not having like street soccer culture. So when I don't live in Brooklyn anymore, but but last time I did, there was a U seven travel soccer team that met at a park across the street from me, as if anyone in the world thinks that six year olds need to travel in a city of 9 million people to find good enough competition. They don't. Right. But it's part of this professionalization of youth sports. And so they're learning how to run set plays and playing on full fields and all this stuff. And then you go to Brazil and the kids are all playing futsal, right? Small ball stays on the ground. They're playing on, sand one day they're playing on cobblestones the next day different shape area all the time so it's they're getting this like diverse problem solving that i think is part of the essence of athletic creativity whereas whereas it's been sort of overly formalized in u.s development i think some of that is changing though. i mean i think people caught on to this and and the french in their lead up to the world cup they had for about 20 years or more been been steering their system to incorporate some of that more creative development and so i think some of it has been this overly formalized development but that is is in the process of being corrected. So I think we've got a brighter future in yeah, soccer, talk e- about, even without getting more athletes. Now talk about that uh, a little bit more, that generalization of uh, of skills. I know you, you you did a talk that I watched recently, which you know compared kids or athletes or artists even who were very specialized and focused early on versus people who, or kids that tried, you know, for example, many different instruments or different sports. And what are the differences between the two? Because you, you just talked about professionalization of sport versus, you know, like kids in Brazil that play this particular sport that resembles soccer, but all over the place on different types of surfaces. Like, what, what do the two produce? Yeah, I mean, I think this gets to another thing that I was extremely wrong about when I was uh, writing my book proposal for the sports gene, which was I thought I was going to write about the so-called deliberate practice model, which most people know as the 10,000-hour rule. What exactly that means to you kind of depends where you you heard about it from, but scientists call it the deliberate practice model. This idea that, um, you know, basically you, you, your skill level is a direct function of how many hours you've spent in deliberate practice, which is, you know, technical, coached, error correction focused, not kind of free form. And, and that is obviously an important kind of practice. But so I was going to write about this. And I assumed when I went and looked at studies, we'd see that future elite athletes get a head start in their sport in deliberate practice. And they kind of focus in very early, like the Tiger Woods model. And that turned out to be totally wrong, that when I looked at these studies, that elite athletes were, in fact, spending a lot more time in that kind of practice than were lower-level athletes. But if you looked at when scientists tracked their development, the pattern was actually the future elites actually started out spending less time uh, early on in deliberate practice than athletes who plateaued at lower levels. They had what scientists called a sampling period where they did this variety of physical activity. This could be other sports, but it could also be things like dance, martial arts, rock climbing, surfing, whatever. They gain these sort of broader general so-called physical literacy, learn about their interests and abilities, and systematically delayed specializing until later than peers. And so I was surprised to see that. And that got me investigating this in all kinds of other areas. And I realized that an important part of development, if you want somebody to be able to do transfer, okay, so 
if you want someone to do the same thing over and over and over again, then okay. Like you can have them train by doing the same thing over and over and over again. But if you want transfer, which is their ability to take those skills and apply them to new challenges, which of course is like the essence of not only athletic creativity, but all kinds of creativity, then you want to broaden their training. There's this classic finding in skill development that's breadth of training predicts breadth of transfer. So transfer, again, your ability to take those skills or knowledge, apply them to new situations. Your ability to do that is predicted by your breadth, the breadth of problems you face uh, in, in training. And so if you're going to face a, a, a kind of challenge that needs creativity, like elite soccer players do, then you better build in a lot of that breadth of problem solving uh, early on. And if you don't, you end up getting sort of more rigid performers. That's really interesting. Do you see, I, I, you know, an idea is uh, popping in my head about maybe an example of this. I don't know if this is uh, an area that you looked into, but when children learn a language versus when children learn yeah. three or four different languages. Now I know statistically, if a kid learns three languages or even two languages at the same time, they tend to speak a little later. Yeah. But do they show better verbal, you know, fluency and creativity later on from doing something like that? Did you look in this particular area? I should say this, this, the, the research in multilingualism is kind of a muddled mess. There's a lot of disagreement, but, but my read of what I think the good studies were, were one, you're right. That's that kids who are growing up with multiple languages tend to develop their, their language skills a little more slowly, but they do not end up behind at all. Um, they totally catch up. And in fact, there are experiments that show that they retain an advantage for then learning any subsequent language, even one that's like made up by the scientists with made up grammar, wow. just by being thrown in. Like they don't need instructions to do it. And those results, so, so it's like as if having to, you know, work in these two different worlds gave them a more generalized skill of learning how to learn something like this language. And that looks very similar to some of the research in sports where like at the Australian Institute of Sport, they saw athletes who had participated in at least three so-called attacking sports. That means like, you know, volleyball, basketball, soccer, whatever, something where you're having to, to judge things that are coming, like use anticipatory skills. Um, and people who had, who had participated in at least three of those subsequently needed fewer hours to reach elite status in, in other sports. And so it seems very similar to language in the sense that diversifying causes you to build these sort of general skills that, that allow you to transfer and more quickly learn in other domains. Now, I, I imagine there's some sort of a, a bell curve with this, though, right? Like it, there, at one point you do want to specialize, right? And did you yep. did you come across it or did you put piece that together of like, okay, you would you would want your child to play multiple sports until this point and then you would want to specialize? Did you Did you get into that at all? Yeah. Th and this is kind of like a, the bajillion dollar question in a way. And, and I think the fact is we don't know the answer in terms of what would be the perfect timing for specialization, because in all these studies that track athletes, th there's never a study that really allows them to, to develop in the perfect way, right? Because there's, whether it's scholarships or development pipelines or whatever, there are always these other pressures so sometimes that you need, right? Because like you're you're, you know, you have, you undergo physical changes. Like you don't have unlimited time to do these sorts of things. And so I don't think we totally know. Although if you look at sort of people who wanted to be college athletes, but, but didn't make their team and ended up in intramurals versus those who became, uh, got scholarships, like in division one, you'll see that the, the, the scholarship athletes tended to specialize. I think the average age was about 15.3. And for the athletes at lower levels, it was like 
about 14, basically, um, in a famous German soccer study that had some players that went on to their World Cup championship team. It wasn't until age 22 when the, the elites kind of stopped doing anything outside of soccer, these other activities. So I don't think we know what the perfect time is. But I, I, so I think the best approach to this challenge for a lot of reasons is to try to incorporate, because I don't think you have to like, if you're a soccer player, you have to throw on a basketball jersey and play basketball. I think it's about incorporating movement diversity and problem solving diversity, Mm -hmm. not about actually playing another sport. And so I think like a genius way to, to deal with the, the social pressures and the, the best development is, is something that Judy Murray does. She's Andy and Jamie Murray, the tennis player's mother. Mm. And she, she runs a tennis development camp and people feel okay taking their kids and giving them to her outside of the, you know, the rest of the British system because of her name, basically. And she'll take them and she'll have them doing tennis, but she'll also have them doing, say, you know, using a deflated ball and playing through tree branches and stuff like that. Hmm. And so it's, it's, it looks tennis like enough for the kids and the parents. Uh, It is tennis like enough, but it's still building in all of this diversity uh, of, of kind of problem solving and physical movement. And so I think the way to go is to build that in kind of at, at all levels. Interesting. Yeah, I was. I think that's what futsal does for soccer development. Basically, it's just you know. So I think it's just like a proxy for that. I've heard a lot of uh, world class strength coaches actually like promoting more general play in the beginning. They actually have like come up with kind of a formula for that in terms of like uh, you know through their youth it's more general, and then they start to kind of go into team sports and then individual sports. If you were to mold your perfect athlete, let's just say hypothetically, uh, you know what would that look like in terms of like a timeline of, of what to get involved in, what type of training, you know, to start kind of uh, fashioning down towards more of a specialization approach? I think it depends a bit on the, on the sport, honestly, because, so let's take golf, which has the most famous, right, modern story of development ever, which is Tiger Woods, classic early specialization. Um, and, I, and, and I think, I've, you know, I've been talking about this importance of generalization I think for such a popular sport, there's kind of a dearth of good research on golf, but I, I think one could make a reasonable case that maybe early specialization in golf does work. I, I don't think it's, I think the jury's out from the research standpoint, but I think you could argue that in golf, early specialization does make sense. Hmm. Um, but that's that's partly because golf is kind of the, the epitome of what the psychologist Robin Hogarth called a kind learning environment where Every, everything like the rules and patterns never change. Like human behavior is not really involved. You don't have to deal with other people trying to prevent you from, from reaching the goal. Uh, so you're, you're trying to minimize deviation in your movements as much as possible. It's almost like an industrial process. You know, a lot of other sports aren't like that is you're having to make this dynamic decision-making. And so I sort of think it depends what type of sport you're in. Mm-hmm. And I think the more, the more dynamic the sport is, the more it involves those so-called anticipatory skills where essentially you have to learn how to react to things more rapidly than you actually could if you were waiting to see what happens. Those are the sports where I think you want to build in early multiple different attacking sports um, and and some kind of foundational movement diversity, not only for to prevent burnout and to make people more uh, injury resistant, but also to develop these general capacities. I, I was giving sort of a, a talk about some of this stuff uh, like two years ago and to my 
great dismay, even though it was cool. Serena Williams comes and sits in the second row. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I'm like, all right, I'm talking about this, how delayed specialization is the norm. No matter, I, I could marshal all the scientific data in the world. And if she stands up and says, you're an idiot, that's not how it is. Like, it doesn't matter, right? right it's going right. to be like the worst day ever. <laughs> and at the end, she raises her hand to ask the first question and goes, I think my dad was ahead of his time. He had Venus and I do gymnastics, taekwondo, oh, track and field, uh, I think soccer, she said, I think it was soccer. Um, she said, we, to, to learn how to do an overhand snap for the serve, uh, we would throw footballs. We still do that to warm up. And, you know, I'd been a writer at Sports Illustrated and I'd never heard that story. So, so she had that combination where oh, there wow. was huge amounts of early practice in tennis, but also this diversification outside of it that I didn't really know about. And, and I would argue she's a bit of a kind of a perfect storm of an athlete. Now, hearing oh, you yeah. hearing you say that, it sounds like you attribute uh, most of that, though, to the, the mental gains more than physical. And when I first heard the, the importance of the general play in different sports, I, the trainer in me thinks, uh, oh, it's because the movements, you know, to move in different planes and more of like the proprioception that you're getting the benefits from that. But it sounds like you're explaining it like it's more of the the, the mental side and the problem side, problem no, solving. I, I, well, I think I think it's a both. And I, by the way, I left out ballet. That was one of the other ones she said. Um, and I, I think it's a both. I think it's a both. Um, I, I I think the movement is actually super important, and not only not only just for making someone more physically literate in general, but for injury resistance also. Like, there's some really cool. And, you know, you guys probably know this, that up and down, but um, Cirque du Soleil has some really cool physiology data. I spent some time with their physiologist, you know, because they have some of their athletes were Olympians and they're doing a tremendous amount of shows a year. And it's a Canadian company, I guess. So they track their injury rates next to Canadian gymnastics. And looking at some of this data, they decided to have some of the performers learn like the basics of several other performers disciplines, not because they were going to perform them, but to see if it would help in any way. And subjectively, they thought it made them more creative in designing their acts. That was subjective, you know, who knows? Objectively, it dropped their injury rates by like a third. Wow. That's huge gain, yeah. right? So yeah. I think I think there's this injury resistance, but, and, and I don't think they know exactly why that is. I think we can guess about it and there's a lot of reasonable guesses. So I think it's a combination of, you know, the mental, when it comes to anticipatory Skills in sports, like the sports that move fast, the mental and the physical, the problem solving and the stuff you can do with your body are kind of like one in the same anyway. Um, so I think it's part of part of the same thing. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, at its face, it sounds so counterintuitive. Like you would think, well, yeah, a kid who just practices soccer at, from the age of four all the way through is going to be better than the kid who tries five different types of sports. But it's showing, the data is showing quite clearly it's actually the opposite. Something else you talked about that was very counterintuitive was, were some of the reasons why world records get beat and broken in so many different sports. Now, I remember thinking, oh, it's the advancements in, you know, in drugs, in, in performance-enhancing drugs. Like, these athletes are taking anabolic <laughs> steroids and growth hormones, and that's the reason why people are so much faster and stronger these days. But you did a whole talk debunking quite a bit of that, and it was very convincing, and it blew my mind. Would you mind going into that a little bit? Yeah, and I would argue, let me address the drugs point head on, because for quite a while, most of the work I was doing at Sports Illustrated was about drugs, so <clears throat> don't think I'm naive about them. Um, but I, I would argue that athletes now, you know, and, and for some years now, have actually been at a disadvantage on the drug front compared to 
athletes in like the 80s and 90s. So there's there's plenty of athletes still getting away with doping. But I think especially like the biological passport, which is kind of testing that takes a whole bunch of tests over time and looks at blood profiles and you can see fluctuations in it, has at least meant that athletes have to dope less, more carefully. Oh, I see. To avoid getting caught. Whereas there were decades past where they didn't even have to be careful. Oh, interesting. Um, and so I think you can still see that if you look at world records, like in women's track and field, some of the records are still stuck in the 80s, mm-hmm. uh, this, this era of mega doping. And so it's not to say that I think drugs have are out of sports by any stretch of the imagination, but I think athletes now are at a drug disadvantage compared to, to athletes from uh, a previous generation. But I think they, are, they have huge advantages in other areas, uh, technology and sort of innovation being a huge, huge one of those. So some of the examples I cited, you know, we're looking at like Jesse Owens, who, um, you know, he, he had to use like a gardening trowel when he was racing to dig out a little hole to start and then he'd run on cinders, which is like, you know, it's basically like running on coarse dust, essentially. Uh, and analysis of his joint speed showed that he was running like about as fast as Carl Lewis. It's just that he was much slower because of the surface and the shoes and all those sorts of things. Or in swimming, you've had this incredible mix of, of sort of strategy innovation with technological innovation, where if you look at records in swimming, you'll see they come down sort of slowly and sometimes they'll plateau a little. And then it's punctuated by these really steep cliffs. And those will be things like uh, the introduction of goggles, which allow people to train a lot more because like their eyes didn't get as sore or gutters on the side of the pool. So the turbulence goes off instead of splashing back and, and slowing down the swimmers and, and things like the flip turn. And then of course, low friction speed suits at a, uh, swimsuits at a certain point. Or now in track this year, we're seeing all these records go down because these shoes with carbon fiber plates have, have been allowed. Uh, so I think a huge amount of improvement that often goes unrecognized uh, are these sort of little technological changes. Um, uh, that make a huge difference at the elite level. So when you control for these technical technological innovations, when you do controls for those, are we much more similar to athletes of the past? And how would they compete now? Like if you took Usain Bolt and you brought him back 60 years and he had to run on the same shoes, same track, same blocks, everything the same, how would he do compared to athletes of the past, for example? Bolt, I think, would still have been the best, but he would have been a lot closer. Like Jesse Owens would have been within like a half stride of him um, instead of, instead of if you, if you just stack their times up next to each other, they would Hmm. be, you know, it would be like a pro running against like a high school kid, basically not, I mean, not a high school kid, but it it would be a blowout. And I think, I think, I do think athletes are different though. If we're talking about going way, like if we think about the Olympics a hundred years ago, most of the world wasn't even competing (laughs) and you could, you could be basically the only person who was really talented or the only person who knew anything about training and show up and win a gold medal. Now, many more people are ruled out by either their nature or their nurture, right? They don't have the physiology it takes or they don't have the training it takes. It's gotten so much more competitive and global that you need to have sort of everything falling into place. But I think from the, from the sort of pure physiological perspective, not as different from the past as it seems. So if we, if we look at someone who I think is like an, the unequivocal you know, a kind of a once a generation kind of athlete is Simone Biles right now, who's, who's making all kinds of headlines. And, and when I remember in the last Olympics, when she was, when she was blowing everyone away, there was this meme going around that showed vault uh, progression over the decades. And you could see like 40 years ago or 50 years ago or something, it would be like someone bounces on 
uh, the springboard and they do like just like a single flip over the over the vault or something like that, like something pretty simple. And the idea was that, well, all this all this difference has come from training and some of it has, but some of it hasn't like the average elite female gymnast has shrunk from five foot three to four foot nine on average (laughs) over the last 30 years, Mm -hmm. which makes them, they have a much higher power to weight ratio. They have a lower moment of inertia, which means they can spin a lot more easily. Not a lot of weight outside of center of gravity can spin more easily in the air. Uh, The surfaces have gotten bouncier. So all these things, so the athletes, there's no doubt there's better and that she's the best, but there are these sort of unspoken changes, both with athlete body selection and with the technology that has a big impact too. Yeah, so let's talk about, let's go a little deeper into that because, uh, you know, studying sports and athletics and, and and physical performance, you know, if you go back a long time ago, the ideal Olympic athlete was considered to be this kind of overall athlete that looked, they all look kind of similar. The shot putter yeah. looked like the sprinter, looked like the swimmer. Today, if you put those three athletes together, they don't they don't even look like they're, <laughs> they're in the same universe. I mean, Michael Phelps, for example, his leg length is like similar to, you know, a, dis- a long distance runner who's, you know, a full 12 inches shorter than him or something like that. Like it's insane Boost how different those ridiculously yeah, long. Yeah. That's called yeah. the d- democratization of sports. Go into that a little bit for us. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Phelps, and that's, that's what you want, right? You, if you want, you want the long torso, it's like the long hull of a boat or a canoe where it, it, it makes, you know, it speeds over the water. And he has these arms that are much longer than his height, which by the way, is not people always talk about Phelps arms length. Not unusual for elite swimmers. He's not an outlier in that regard compared to other elite swimmers, really. Um, but but you're right. So in the kind of mid 20th century, sports science was more dominated by uh, German science, essentially. And and I went back when I was working on the sports gene. I had some of their these German physical education journals uh, translated, and you'd keep seeing this this phrase that translated to perf- the perfect form of man, and this meant like only men, only white men, medium height, medium weight. And the idea was that they would be the best for everything, kind of this like platonic ideal of the athlete. Uh, and it was part of this whole racial agenda. Um, and, you know, they they lost that 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 war uh, mid-century and their, their science became a lot less influential. And I think coaches and, and sports scientists started realizing instead of wanting this like single body that's good for everything, you actually want bodies that fit into certain athletic niches. So like you were saying, in the mid-20th century, the average elite high jumper and average elite shot putter were identical size. Now you look at that today, the average elite shot putter is like a few inches and more than 100 pounds heavier <laughs> than the average elite hmm. high jumper. So th- this is something, the, the people made this finding, uh, these Australian scientists, where they plotted data points for on a height-weight graph for different sports in the mid 20th century and then plotted data points for the same sports again on the same height weight graph uh, for, you know, near the present time, they saw that all the athlete body types had blown away from one another. So they call it the big bang of body types where like the small athletes are getting smaller. The tall athletes are getting taller. It's all, there's this, there's this artificial selection going on for these, these bodies that fit into particular niches. Now, David, I have to share a story on how I actually originally found you. So I found you years ago, and uh, ironically, the way I found you was I was trying to prove my point to my buddies. So there's, I've got my buddies. We go all the way back since we were in elementary school. We all were into sports. And as I got older into, into personal training, I was around a lot of professional athletes, and I was uh, introduced to how much steroid use was you know, amongst pro athletes. 
And I was the one to argue that it was steroids that has evolved sports so much. And I now thought I knew this because I was around it all the time and unaware of it. And I was actually searching to prove my point and found your first TED Talk. And it actually blew my mind that, oh, my God, maybe steroids play a much smaller role in the evolution of sports than I think uh, based off of all the stuff that you found. So I feel like you're a great person to ask to speculate on this. If you had to speculate, how much of a role do you think steroids plays in professional sports? I think they are a, a big role. I think they're all over the place. I think they made, from a standpoint of pushing the frontier of human performance, I think their largest impact was from the mid to late 20th century. And that while they're still all over the place, as I mentioned, I think I think the current athletes are, are at a doping disadvantage. So again, I remember when I was doing some reporting on this, just to give an example, um, I got some documents from a cycling team. So when the biological passport started, and again, that's this kind of testing where instead of looking for the drug or the metabolites of the drug that's being tested for, you take a bunch of tests from the athlete over time and you just look at are certain parameters in their blood fluctuating in a way that can't be natural. Mm. And so this is a more powerful form of testing because you don't have to catch the actual drug or its metabolites. Are all sports we, doing this? Are all sports? Because I didn't know about this. No, not all sports. Okay. No, I mean, the sports that the sports that don't have uh, unions are doing it, basically, <laughs> more or less. Not That's not 100% true, but like the Olympic sports have it. Um, but okay. you know, I was unaware not, of this. That's why. <laughs> um, and so that, that's been kind of a technological for... Uh, you know, that was, that was sort of a jump in anti-doping. It's not to say that most people are doping still aren't getting away with it. But so this cycling team that I got a document leak from basically when biological passports started, suddenly all the, these blood parameters, uh, like things like how many new blood, new red blood cells are, is your body making? All the guys on the team started looking like they were identical twins, right? So they saw mm -hmm. that, oh, you have to, you start getting hemmed in. You say, we're not allowed to fluctuate a certain amount. So you have to start tailing that, tailoring that doping a lot more carefully, which meant they had to dope less. It didn't mean they weren't doping. In fact, it was totally improbable that they could have all looked so similar in their <laughs> blood profiles all of a sudden, but it did mean they had to start doping less. So I think, I think drugs are important. <laughs> I think they made a huge impact on sport, but I think the hugest impact that they made was most mostly... I don't think they'll ever make as large an impact again as they did like in the eighties and early nineties, um, you know, and, and a bit later than that in, in like baseball. Um, and I think the sign of that again, in the Olympic sports, if you go and look at where some of the women's records, because the, you know, steroids are all analog chemical analogs of testosterone. And since women start with relatively so little testosterone, uh, even a modest amount can make a huge performance difference. And so if you go look at where some of those women's records are still stuck, I think that's the signature of the era that, uh, that had the biggest doping difference. Yeah. I wanted to actually ask if there was going through and kind of looking at all these different performance enhancing type drugs, were there some interesting drugs that athletes were using for different sports that you would have never thought of? Like I know for one, for me, I've heard of is some athletes using microdosing uh, psilocybin as, as a bit of a performance enhancement. But you know that was surprising to me. Was there any uh, surprising drugs out there that we we did, we wouldn't have thought of? There was like there was always funny stuff. I mean, there was you know like I remember guys would say they'd take methyl testosterone for aggression. Like <laughs> NFL players, they felt like it made them more aggressive. Whether that was true or not, I, I really don't know. Um, but probably the most interesting stuff was 
sort of like what happened with Balco, where there would be some drug that like a company would have been trying to develop and abandon and some really bright, uh, you know, person who was interested in this stuff would just go find this and re-engineer it. I think Norbolethone, I think was, was, was the name of one of those. Um, and, and so I always thought that was interesting. Um, if there were sort of particular drugs that I found to be particularly interesting, I don't know. I thought they were all, all kind of interesting. I, th- every once in a while, there would be something that I'd never heard of. There were drugs that like really like never came to market and someone would re-engineer them. Mm-hmm. And I always found that to be uh, just to be sort of interesting in principle. C- compare the, the impact that anabolic steroids had on athletes versus growth hormone, which is another, you know, it's not an anabolic steroid, but it's also can be considered performance enhancing drug. Yeah. And then another one that's very popular is EPO, which is the, yeah. the, the hormone that increases red blood cells. I compare the impact of, of all of those and, and I guess which ones make the biggest impact. I, I think there's still some, some un- unknowns about growth hormone. And I think that's partly to do with the fact that back when um, steroids, anabolic steroids were, which of course people should not like get confused with the corticosteroids in their inhaler or whatever, um, which will not grow your muscles, but eat them if you take too much. Mm-hmm. Um when anabolic steroids were, when there was this big, you know, fuss about it in Congress in like the early nineties, I think, and they got moved, they, they became scheduled substances. They were already prescription substances. So, you know, there were limitations, but then they became like drugs with criminal penalties. And in the process of this legislation, growth hormone got like sort of moved into this special designation. Uh, and at the time, there were scientists testifying in front of Congress saying like, let's not tar growth hormone with the same brush as some of these other things because we don't know enough about it yet. And so I I think the legislative history suggests to me that they actually wanted to make it less restricted. And yet this law got interpreted as being even more restrictive that there's only like five legal uses for it. And so that really hindered research into, into human growth hormone. And so I think there's a lot we still don't know. So there's so much of, you know, if you talk to people who use growth hormone, or you talk to you know lots of steroid dealers or users, the most ex- common experience I had is they'll say, well, it doesn't do that much on its own, but when you put it in combination with steroids, it has this like, you know, huge effect. People would cite everything from like their eyesight getting better to, you know, slimming down and all this kind of stuff. And I think it's hard to know what exactly of that is true um, because very few people take it in isolation. And when they do, they're like very few good studies on it. So I think there's still a lot that isn't known about growth hormone. I think that's unfortunate uh, that it that it became enmeshed in the law in that way. So I don't know, but I think the major, I think the bigger impact has been uh, from steroids or from testosterone itself, particularly. I mean, testosterone is a huge, you know, as any guy who's gone through puberty knows, like testosterone changes your athleticism, whether you, you lift weights or not, right? A lot of athletes used to say, uh, you know, uh, he's not doping. Look at what he does in the weight room. Like, but you went through puberty and you may not have gone to the weight room and you still gained a lot of fat-free mass, right? right. You still right. got a lot of muscle. So I think that's been the biggest difference, testosterone. I mean, EPO, you know, useful for any, so EPO is a, it's a synthetic version of a natural hormone that stimulates your body to create red blood cells, which carry oxygen. And so it increases your oxygen carrying capacity. Um, most notably in the Tour de France, of course, where it totally changed changed the game. Um, but I think, 
I think in endurance sports, EPO and, and blood doping, you know, one of the hardest things to detect is when someone takes out their own blood, mm-hmm. waits so that their body regenerates blood, and then re-injects their own blood. Very hard to detect and very effective for endurance. Uh, and I think that's had a huge impact on endurance sports, especially. David, you have to talk a little bit about um, uh, Alex Rodriguez. You were you were responsible for breaking his story, correct, as far as his steroid use? Yeah, with my colleague, Selena Roberts. Yeah. So uh, share with us a little bit about what that was like in your life. I mean, it had to have been a, a very pivotal moment in your life. Yeah, that was something. Um, gosh, what was it like? Well, you know, let me give you, maybe this is a little bit of interesting background, but but some of the way that story came together was, if you remember around, you know, in back when steroids were in baseball were, were like the main baseball headline and Congress again dragged a, dragged baseball in and said, hey, you do something about this or we will. Um, baseball implemented in the early 2000s, they, they agreed to satisfy Congress. Baseball agreed with the players union to do survey testing where they would <laughs> tell the players when they were going to get tested in majors and minors, right? Like telling them when they were going to get tested on one date. shouldn't fail when if you know when the test is coming. Right. And they said, all right, if... or more of our players test positive, then we have a problem and we'll implement testing. That was their deal with Congress, basically. Thinking that no way are 5% or more players going to test positive when they know the day the test is coming. Right. We're giving you a heads up, everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Turns out they severely underestimated (laughs) the number of people who would test positive, and and particularly in the minors. Um, And so it was more than 5%. And these were all anonymized just for survey testing, right? So the names were separate from test results. But the players' union was going to challenge this. They were going to try to get a bunch of them thrown out to get that below 5% so that they wouldn't have to implement testing. And when they were trying to get it thrown out, um, that at the same time, Balco was going on. And you know, law enforcement agents got a subpoena to go collect the survey testing data and match it to the names for like 10 players or something who might have been caught up in Balco. And so they show up at a lab and the lab's like, well, we can't give you anything. So they just take the whole computer and suddenly they have all the baseball survey results. This ended up being a really important case for reasons that have nothing to do with sports, actually, about what are what is the government's right to like seize a you know, huge amount of information on, on a computer. But um, basically those those test results got matched up and and you know, my colleague and I learned that that meant they were still around and that maybe we could get a look at them. And uh, you know, Alex Rodriguez had tested positive in that in that survey testing, and for me, mostly it was it was scary because I was like a young journalist, and I was like, you know, this might be the end of my career. I have no idea how he's going to react to it. I haven't been in this kind of situation before, um, so so it was scary. But but then it was T.J. Quinn of uh, ESPN confirmed it. Like I went for a walk and made sure not to watch TV that morning, mm-hmm. um, and then I got a call that. ESPN was confirming it and A-Rod was going to admit it and all that sort of thing. I think it ended up as kind of a good trade for both teams. So I ended up getting hired as a staff writer at Sports Illustrated. I think he got, maybe got rid of some of his perfectionist syndrome and, uh, you know, we're both doing okay. Oh, so that was actually what got you hired with Sports Illustrated. I didn't know that. I I started there as a temp fact checker because I was in my past life, I was training to be a scientist. I was like living up in the Arctic studying like the carbon cycle in like a tent, you know, (laughs) and, and uh, (laughs) yeah. And so I started as a temp fact checker 
And I sort of caught on because I'd done some crime reporting before I got to SI and I had the science background and these oddball background things made me really unique at Sports Illustrated. So they kept sort of extending my temp job and I was getting more and more involved. And as I realized doping was an interesting issue, I'm like, oh, I can here I can, I don't have a medical background, but I can use my science background to understand some of this. And I sort of had a, had a nose for the investigative stuff. And so they kept hanging, you know, keeping me around. And then when that story um, came, then they really wanted to keep me around even more. Now, what are your personal beliefs around uh, professional athletes or athletes using uh, you know, performance enhancing drugs? I mean, I, you know, cause it's funny from the outside, obviously you see these private organizations like the NBA, NFL, MLB, you know, testing, right. And in quotations, they're athletes, but in reality, if everybody yeah. stopped using drugs, performance would drop attendance yeah. to the games would drop people wouldn't watch as much so they're kind of like you know doing this dance or whatever i mean mm-hmm. what are your personal views do you think they should just let athletes look it's your body do what you yeah. want and let's see what happens full transparency make it fun. or still try and yeah put <laughs> Gosh, up the facade this is such a tough one because because i don't think like i don't think a, a sports body should say um, go ahead and do things that are like against the law of your state or country, um, you know, which some of this would be. And I, and I think in general, the idea of treating drugs, and I don't mean sports drugs, just, just, just drugs in general, like in medicine, frivolously is like not such a great idea. Um, you know, I'm, I'm more, the more medical reporting I've done, the more inclined I've been toward non-medical fixes for physical uh, things when, when possible. I don't at all think that everyone who dopes or anything like that is a bad person. I'm, I'm not like a purist about it. And when I was thinking about that question you asked me, I was trying to decide, do I care about, about doping? I mean, I was a division one track athlete, you know, I'm sure I ran against some people who were, were doping, but at the time you don't, you know, you just block it out. Like you can't, can't think about that stuff. And I came to the work of this guy named Bernard Suits, this Canadian philosopher. And there was a, this kind of challenge in philosophy where this other famous philosopher said, there's no core that unites like all sports and games. There's nothing that they all have in common. And Suits said, no, that's wrong in this brilliant book. And he said, he said, the, the core of all these games and sports is the voluntary acceptance of unnecessary obstacles. And I thought that was so cool. And I kind of felt like if you're attempting to circumvent these obstacles that you voluntarily accepted, I do think there's something in this endeavor that is lost. Hmm. Um and so I think there's whatever meaning emanates from sports, I think has to do with some of that voluntary acceptance of unnecessary obstacles. So I'm not, I'm not pro-doping or just letting anything fly. At, at the same time, I understand the conflict that, that like NFL and NBA and MLB have where they're trying to police themselves, which nobody ever does well, right? Mm-hmm. Just it's not, not a thing that humans are good at. Um, but I think there's some, some really interesting emerging tensions where like, you know, testosterone prescriptions for men in their 40s quintupled over like the last 10 years. These are non-athletes, right? Most of the market for performance-enhancing drugs is not pro-athletes. It's people who want to look better or feel younger, whatever it is. And so I think we may be approaching a situation where you have this huge swath of the population taking some of these things, but it's banned for athletes. And so I think that's going to cause kind of a fundamental uh Reevaluation of some of this question. I'd be curious to hear what you guys think, though, because I don't have a great answer to this well, question. I don't know what the best way to go about it is. Yeah, I, I think that they they know that everyone is trying to to do the same thing. So to them, they feel like they're not necessarily cheating because the next guy is doing the same mm-hmm. thing, and we have to get around this testing. But we're also trying to compete, and so I don't feel like I necessarily have a you know. This is just what I would think that they would think. 
I don't necessarily have an advantage because I know that they're doing the same thing. So it's a it's a level playing field. Well, that's, it's it's also it, you, there's another point that's really interesting to talk about or speculate about too is that there's also a, a, a large spectrum on uh, testosterone levels naturally found in people. So, totally. you know, is it fair that there's a guy who's in the professional sports who maybe has a, a 250 free test and he's competing against somebody who's naturally has 900 free tests mm -hmm. in his body? So, I mean, you got to think about that too. Yeah. And, and then you bring up the point of almost half the population is, is utilizing, you know, hormones and things like that as it is. And so mm. how is that fair that these professional athletes don't get to, but then everybody else is yeah. speaking of which, um, and the, and the power of, of testosterone among other hormones, mm. we're now in the year 2021 and there's a new challenge in sports, which is people transitioning to, uh, the opposite gender and then wanting to compete against their new, uh, you know, in, in their new gender category. And this is mainly, the controversy is mainly with transgender women. You don't see it so much with transgender men, or this is, you know, mm -hmm. women transitioning to men. You see this more with uh, men who transition to women. You have a lot of um, experience researching the effects of these hormones and what they have on people. Do you think that it, it, an athlete transitioning, blocking or lowering their testosterone erases the advantages they may have gotten that they got through going through puberty with testosterone or you think there's a, a certain amount that is permanent that's a permanent advantage okay let, let me come you, you said one other thing i wanted to comment on so let me come back to to that one in a sec sure the about the advantage is that both of the points that two of the points that were made about the even playing field and and uneven testosterone levels are interesting because one thing that did surprise me when i was doing some reporting on doping and cycling is that like some of, you know, like Lance Armstrong's team, they wouldn't, they would go and they would actually look for people who had low levels of say like low hematocrit or proportion of their, their bloodstream that is um, uh, red blood cells and say, oh, this person's good already. And they have more room to dope than oh. someone who's already closer to this detection. Uh, <laughs> and so they would actually look for people who would have more doping potential essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, so the, the, even playing field, I think now doesn't, doesn't work out that way. Kind Interesting. of, yeah. kind of in practice, but okay. To the, to the issue of, of transgender athletes, I think there are, um, and, and most of what I'm going to say here, I think is, is information where I'm paraphrasing two people who I respect like crazy, two scientists, Ross Tucker, a South African, uh, sports scientist and Joanna Harper, a scientist who happens to be um, a, a trans woman who was uh, an age group running champion. And they've, they've been involved in lots of the court cases adjudicating this stuff. Sometimes on different, sometimes they sort of switch sides, so to speak, about whether transgender athletes should be allowed to, hmm. to compete or not. And the reason they do that is, be, is, the reason it seems confusing, I think, is because the answer is they think it's actually sport dependent. So I think Joanna has some pretty good data where she has tracked um, trans women through their physical transition. So as they underwent testosterone suppression, and it shows pretty well that their cardiovascular factors go from being um, typical male to typical female. And so I think you can make the argument in, in some of the sports where, uh, you know, cardiovascular factors are the most important, some distance sports uh, that, that like the NCAA rule that's in place where athletes have to undergo a year of testosterone suppression um, uh, is a is a pretty decent way to go, at least until we learn more. From the standpoint of muscle and and you know and bone, uh, what Joanna's research shows is that um, a 
a transgender woman ends up sort of between the does not come all of puberty is not erased all of male, male puberty is not erased some of it is but as she says she says like i'm still stronger than um you know a typical female and then have more more muscle and bone mass and so i think it's kind of you know a sport by sport basis in some way so i know the one of the controversial cases that was going on recently was with world rugby where the question was how should we think about um transitioning athletes who may bring more muscle mass and, and what kind of injury risk that that might bring into play. So I think it really depends a lot on, on the concerns of an individual sport. Yeah. Cause you also have, yeah, there's so many factors to, I mean, just this, this is coming from a, a, I'm an expert in fitness and this has just been a passion of mine. And I know it's just more than testosterone. You have androgen receptor density, which is much higher in men. You have muscle memory, which is a very real thing. So if you built 15 pounds of muscle and then later on lost it, you know, gaining it back would take you a fraction of the time. Of course, both, of course, bone mass. It's actually much more uh, complex than people uh, realize. And uh, it's, yeah. a, it's an interesting, you know, position uh, to be in. So I think I, th I would, I would, I would agree with you. It depends on the, on the sport, but if strength and power are big factors, you're going to have an advantage if you went through puberty uh, as a biological male. Anything, David, you're currently researching right now that's interesting? You know, I've been, I don't know if this will will resonate a little bit because some of it's, but but there is some literature on this in sort of the movement uh, sciences. I've been kind of interested in y useful constraints, so to speak, um, whether, uh, you know, that's from the perspective of like the arts, like maybe the most simple thing that people are familiar with is like a haiku, right? Any kid can write it because something about those constraints actually liberates people's creativity instead of making them feel more boxed in. But I was, I was just talking to um, uh, a hitting coach who was a strength and conditioning coach, became a hitting coach in the Yankees system and was, was seeing some of the stuff that this coach was doing where it would be like to get guys to, you know, open up their hips the right way would make them like stand with part of their leg in a hurdle. And it would be like, okay, like, don't, you know, don't touch this part of the hurdle when you do this. And it was like using these physical barriers where instead of saying, open your hip like this and move like this and move your arm like that, it was putting them in this environment where the constraints of the situation naturally caused them to, to try to solve the problem with their movement in a certain way. And I'm kind of interested in useful constraints in general, physical, artistic, you know, when it comes to scientific innovation, stuff like that. So I've been I've been kind of nerding out on that. A bit That's actually as, really as interesting because that reminds me of a story I share as a personal trainer when I piece together this uh, this way of helping a client do a bicep curl with good form. Uh, years I, I struggled with this. Somebody who was unathletic, never trained before. I, I, no matter how many times I explained it, broke down the biomechanics of it, displayed it for them, I hand it to them and they would, they would inevitably fuck it up every time. And so <laughs> I come up with this idea of introducing a you know, stability component to it where I make, I make them stand on one leg and balance. And the reason why as a coach I do that is because I know that when you are standing with good posture, it's much easier for you to balance. If you're balanced when you go to do the bicep curl, inevitably you'll pull the shoulders back, keep the elbows by your side, and you won't rock the arms because that'll throw you off balance. And instead of giving them all those nuanced details, all I said was, just just balance and do the curl. And I found that they perform the exercise better than if I were to go through all the details of it, which I find that interesting that you're into that right now. Yeah. I mean, I think, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, um, David, you know, because you're somewhat of an expert on, on uh, performance-enhancing drugs and blood doping, uh, what about these future 
drugs and, and ways of improving performance that we've been reading about. Like I mean, SARMs. I, I, yeah, like um, let's let's. What about SARMs or myostatin inhibitors? You know, there's that there's yeah, that famous yeah. picture of the, you know, the dog that was myostatin, myostatin dog. inhibited. Yeah. You know, whippet dog that looks like it's the, like a bodybuilder compared to a regular dog, for example. What about these yeah. new introductions of ways of improving performance that are very different from the past ones? Yeah, and for myostatin, so myostatin is a is a or the myostatin gene. It codes for a, a protein called myostatin that tells your muscles to stop growing, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and you'd say, well, why would we have something like that? Well, because like in our ancestral state, you know, muscle, as you know, is protein expensive, and it wasn't just like protein powder uh, when we weren't living with grocery stores, and so you don't want your muscles to grow out of control. So, but if people want to see a fun picture, Google bully whippet for dogs or Belgian <laughs> blue for cows, and yeah. you can see cows and dogs that have been bred to have no myostatin. So their muscles grow like out of control. Um, and, and I think the reason you bring that up is because it's, it's been one of the early prospects for gene doping where you can create, uh, you can engineer a gene in a lab and, and, and put it in someone's body and, and, mm-hmm. you know, it can go to work. Um, and I think for a long time, there's been a question of like, is this sort of the end of, of anti-doping if we can do stuff like that? And I don't think it necessarily is. I think there are there are still prospective ways that you could you could detect stuff like that. That said, I think we're usually jumping the gun about new drugs because the simple stuff, you know, timing your testosterone use well, keeping the doses manageable, um, uh, doping with testosterone and epitestosterone together because that's one of the common tests tests for the ratio of those. Uh, t- taking out your own blood and reinjecting your own blood. These things are still really, really hard to catch. And so I don't see much reason for athletes to be moving on from them other than just like the sexiness of the next thing. So like I said, I think if if, the, if we're talking about athletes who are subject to drug testing, um, I do think they're hemmed in more than they were in the past, but they just have to be smarter about it basically. Uh, and, and so I'm not sure, I think there's anything really better than testosterone and its analogs, which also, by the way, increases your red blood cell production, uh, testosterone does, which is one of the reasons why people who are on testosterone, even if it's you know medical, they often have to get tested or donate blood if they're overproducing blood and stuff like that. Um, so, so I'm less inclined to jump to the the brave new world future than I used to be in the past. Are you, uh, did, have you ever thought about investigating how large of a black market there is around coaches to take these athletes through that. Obviously, you're a professional athlete. Your main focus is playing baseball your whole life. You're not probably thinking about how do I cycle dope in and out so I don't get caught. Do you have any idea of how large that that market is? For You mean the market for... Hiring um, like coaches to professionally teach you how to do this. I mean, it's... I, I doubt very... I've, or at least, may, correct me if I'm wrong, I doubt most professional athletes are figuring out this them themselves. They're probably right. hiring this out. I have no idea how big that market is. I think, I think there was certainly a time in cycling when that was like, you know, I don't think they had that people had that on their business card as part of the team, but every team had that. Um, and so I think it's around, I mean, I think one of the things that I, I learned uh, in, you know, over some years of doping reporting was that, the system basically doesn't function without um, doctors usually being involved at some level. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that was a bit of a surprise to me, but at at a certain point, it usually a lot of time traces back to doctors who either they they 
think it's fun or they like to be around athletes or they just want to see what it can do or whatever. And so I think there are, I, I have no idea what the size of the market is, mm-hmm. but, and, and I think the market among athletes is way smaller than the one among people who just want to like look and, and feel better. Right. Mm-hmm. Like if you go and Google hormone replacement therapy or whatever, you can get tons of places that will write you prescriptions without any sort of real examination or anything like that. So I think that's the big market. I don't know how big the market is hmm. for actual athletes, but hmm. uh, sort of the most surprising thing to me was that it doesn't totally run at some level without doctors being involved. So you've kind of gone through the democratization of sports and kind of the evolution of how like certain technology and things has, has advanced. Um, and I was curious, like what the next huge leap you think is going to be for us. And if maybe even like something like CRISPR or gene editing is going to be a part of that. Yeah. CRISPR, I think that that's a great question. Cause on, on the one hand, I think there's an argument. So CRISPR, like you mentioned, I guess, we don't need to explain it much more than that, but a technology that can can edit, select parts of people's genome. I think um, on the one hand, you can make an argument that we shouldn't be that concerned about CRISPR because, you know, like back when the human genome was sequenced just after the turn of the millennium, the, the, the idea was if you go back and look at news coverage, it was like, we're all going to have a, a chip with our DNA on it in 10 years, which would have been like 2013 and we're going to take it to our doctor and they're going to look at our genome and personalize our treatment, right? None of us have that, obviously. Mm-hmm. Like we're basically not using genetic testing except in, you know, sort of very specific circumstances at all. Um, and I think part of that is because like the motto for learning about genetics has been, it's more complicated than we thought. So at the time, you know, people thought, I remember thought we're going to have, you know, huge amounts, like hundreds of thousands of genes because, I don't know, ringworms have some thousand and we're so much more complicated. It turns out we have 23,000, which was kind of a disappointment. Like we have less DNA than onions. <laughs> um, and, and so it was like, huh, that's, well, that's surprising. But it turns out that those genes work in very complicated interactions. Not to mention genes are the parts of your DNA that code for specific proteins. Most of your DNA is what used to be called junk DNA because it doesn't code directly for proteins. So the thinking was, well, it doesn't do anything. It's just you know, byproduct. Turns out it does stuff. It helps determine how all those other genes are working. And when you think about the possible combinations, it's incredibly complex. And so if you look at something as simple as adult height, adult height in industrialized world where everyone, where people have nutrition, you know, and, and they're not getting childhood infections a lot. So like in the United States, it's about 80 to 90% heritable, meaning the differences between two adults in their height on average 80, 90% of that will be because of the genes that they inherited. Not a huge surprise. And yet something as simply measurable as height, when studies are done to figure out what genes control that, studies that have thousands of people, they will have found hundreds of thousands of spots on the genome that each influence height a tiny, tiny, tiny Mm -hmm. bit. It may turn out that every gene has a little bit of influence in in your ultimate height. And what that means is that these most traits other than certain rare diseases are, are products of this huge interconnecting Mm. web of genes, each of which have tiny, tiny, tiny effects. So it's not like you can really isolate that very specific attribute. Right. And so, so how are you going to CRISPR all that stuff? You're not also CRISPR has some off target effects sometimes in studies, which is a different issue. You might end up editing things <laughs> yeah. you don't want to edit. Try and, get, get, try and get fast. You get, uh, you know, a red eyes instead. <laughs> <laughs> right. Which would be even cooler if you were fast <laughs> and had red eyes. But, 
But I will say there are certain exceptions that make me think CRISPR could have an impact, which there are three cases uh, I know of. The myostatin, or a human, we know with double myostatin mutation. So this was a baby who was discovered to have no myostatin and had this Whoa. explosive muscle growth as a little baby. And and at, the, at, at a certain stage, at least, that baby's mother was the only adult I knew of with a single myostatin mutation, and she'd been a professional sprinter. There was a case I did a This American Life story on uh, that involved a, a bronze medalist sprinter who had a mutation that caused her to have fat wasting and explosive muscle growth, and that was from a single gene mutation. The myostatin one was a single gene mutation. Um, and then there was this famous case I wrote about in the sports gene in the last chapter of this Finnish skier who was the greatest cross-country skier in the world uh, for a while, won some gold medals named Aero Monturanta, who had a mutation that caused him to overproduce red blood cells. So he had this incredible oxygen carrying capacity. So in those three cases, a single rare gene mutation was so powerful that it overwhelmed all this other stuff and produced an effect on its own. Hmm. So those are cases where I could see maybe those are CRISPR targets that you could talk about. At the same time, you know, I would still opt for doping with my own blood versus trying to CRISPR my my EPO receptor gene, but <laughs> yeah, uh, that's just me. Agreed. Do you know of any any uh, negative uh, side effects that were connected to those three cases? Like, okay, this person's yeah. got this double, you know, myostatin inhibition gene, but they also, you know, have you know high Too liver lengthy. enzymes or high cholesterol, something like that. Yeah, yeah. In in all the cases, actually. Well, so the the kid with the myostatin, the kid's identity was protected. So I don't know what that. I should probably try to check in on that now, but. Um, I don't know. I know there was concern that there would be like excessive heart muscle growth uh, if it wasn't going to be. So I don't know if that was realized or not. Um, in terms of the the bronze medal sprinter, uh, who her name is Priscilla Lopes Schleep, she's identified in the in the story, um, who had fat wasting and explosive muscle growth. She did. She ended up with like super high triglycerides, and she hadn't even been checking that stuff out because like. You know, she's one of the best sprinters in the world. Does she really going to have a problem with something like triglycerides? Turned out she did. Mm -hmm. So she had to get medicated and now she's, um, she's, she's, you know, being treated. Uh, in the case of Aeromonturanta, who overproduced red blood cells, he didn't turn out to really have bad health effects. Other than his skin, I went and met him in the Arctic where he was a reindeer farmer many years later and his skin had turned kind of like purple and red. Um, but he didn't really have, he lived, he was strong into old age. But other conditions that tend to overproduce red blood cells, people sometimes do have uh, conditions where they need to get like blood drawn. Right. But in his case, he seemed to to do to do quite well. Did mm. your attitudes towards uh, blood doping and performance enhancing substances did it change as you did this research? Like, were you more when you started? Were you like, I'm an athlete, you got to not do it. Uh, it's cheating. And then later on, did it change or vice versa? You mean because of like meeting someone who was naturally blood doped? Yeah. yeah. No, it didn't really because I never I never thought of sports as trying to standardize the genes. I never thought of it as a, a a level playing field or else we'd just like watch identical twins or something. Um and so you know, and the idea that people have different levels of red blood cells is like if if we were trying to divide sports by testosterone levels or blood cell count, then I'd say okay, like you know, we should do that, but but we're not. Um and so I never I thought of it as more of like a cool playground for for biological diversity as opposed to something that should be leveled as a playing field. So, so I, I like the expressions of 
of the different abilities that, that people have, whether it's on or off the field. Do you think there's any mm -hmm. sports that are like great equalizers when it comes to doping and stuff like that? For example, we've speculated before about, uh, you know, it might be advantageous for some fighters to use steroids, but not at the cost of potentially putting them at a higher weight class. Like who's stronger, the guy who is naturally 220 pounds or the guy that used anabolic steroids to get him to 220 pounds and probably in the fight game, it would be uh, less advantageous to take steroids. Have you seen sports that you think are more equalizers like that? That's a good question. I mean, I, I definitely think that's another thing that I think wouldn't get rid of doping, but would kind of hem it in to some degree where you wouldn't want to gain too much weight. Well, I think, I think the potential advantage of, of the endurance drugs, of drugs like EPO or blood doping in fight sports are probably vastly underestimated by like the typical sports enthusiast, because those sports require ridiculous endurance mm -hmm. and right. And it's one thing to be the strongest in uh, round one. It's another thing to be like the strongest at the end of a fight. <laughs> and I think those can often be a different person. So um, I don't think there's any sport that like doesn't have, I mean, it's, it's thinking about steroids, particularly a, a sport, in which I would, my hypothesis would be that testosterone doesn't give a large advantage would be a sport in which men and women perform the same level. Mm, good point. Because if they don't, then, you know, I think testosterone is typically the main source of that advantage, whether that was testosterone in, in puberty or current testosterone levels. Um, and there are sports where, where male and female performance starts to come together, like, in, in running events, it's usually about a 10% difference between the best men and the best women in the world, whether it's 100 meters or 10,000 meters. But in like long distance swimming, it's like 6%. Um, so I, I don't think there's anything where the gap closes entirely. I mean, but we probably could, I mean, women out, outperform men in a lot of tests of fine motor skills. We just don't tend to organize sports around those skills mm -hmm. usually. Very interesting. This has been a, a very fun uh, conversation, David. I appreciate you coming on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's, it's fun to talk to you guys. And uh, yeah, I haven't talked about doping that much in quite a while. So it's, <laughs> it's an interesting topic. And it's, it's fun to, to, to talk to where I'm allowed to like not know the perfect answers to this stuff because I certainly don't. Yeah, yeah, no. Yeah. That's actually originally, like I said, how I found it. I found you years ago. It was a long, long debate. And uh, because of you, I lost the argument. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> so thanks a lot. Well, yeah. It makes you feel any better. I was, you know, I'm constantly the things I'm, no, nobody knows, but in when I write things, I'm constantly finding out that I was wrong about what I thought before. <laughs> yeah. you know, so. Well, I was just, just so fat. I was so fascinated by that. That, that first TED talk you did was just, it was phenomenal. And I had, I had assumed that the, the athletes on steroids is what really has made sports accelerate. And that just blew my mind when I, when I watched that. So, yeah, no, yeah, I, 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 I think your combination of being a, a scientist and a journalist is what makes it so, uh, so good and compelling and objective. So I appreciate it. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you, David. Thank you for listening to mind pump. If your goal is to build and shape your body, dramatically improve your health and energy and maximize your overall performance, check out our discounted RGB Super Bundle at mindpumpmedia.com. The RGB Super Bundle includes MAPS Anabolic, MAPS Performance, and MAPS Aesthetic. Nine months of phased expert exercise programming designed by Sal, Adam, and Justin to systematically transform the way your body looks, feels, and performs. 
With detailed workout blueprints and over 200 videos, the RGB Super Bundle is like having Sal, Adam, and Justin as your own personal trainers, but at a fraction of the price. The RGB Super Bundle has a full 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can get it now plus other valuable free resources at mindpumpmedia.com. If you enjoy this show, please share the love by leaving us a five-star rating and review on iTunes and by introducing Mind Pump to your friends and family. We thank you for your support, and until next time, this is Mind Pump.